Welcome back to Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and hello if you're new to the podcast where we talk to creatives about the pivotal moments in their careers. We've got a past guest list of people from all sorts of jobs, from actors to casting directors to musicians. Talking of which, this week's guest is pianist, keyboardist and composer Bill Lawrence. Bill is an original member of Grammy award-winning Snarky Puppy and we spoke while he was in the middle of a solo tour. So you're in Berlin at the moment, and I gather it is an amazing place. And I saw your video today. You were in Dresden, I think. It all looks gorgeous. Yeah, it's 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 a dream, you know. I'm I'm. Uh, I mean, what it's funny because I've just come off the Snarky Puppy tour. Uh, you know, when, at its biggest, we were I think we had a crew of about twenty six people, and so now it's just <laughs> it's just me, <laughs> which is quite a quite a contrast. Um, yeah. Do you, you know, find it quite t- difficult <laughs> to? Um, to switch between I'm in Snarky Puppy and now I am on my own. That must be quite difficult for for you. It's quite, yeah, it's a very different uh, beast, I guess. Um, you know, they come with uh, different pros and cons. <laughs> uh, but no, it's, I mean, it's, um, to be honest, the variety is is great. You know, that's really what what I love. And and it's, it's you know, they both present different challenges and, um the thing i'm trying to explore with the solo thing is is uh this idea of freedom in the sense that you know obviously when you're playing with a band uh there needs to be some degree of conferring going on on stage as to you know when you're moving on to the next section or whatever whereas you know when i'm playing solo it's like that's all out the window so i, I just i have total freedom um and so i'm i'm trying to kind of you know make a point of uh celebrating that freedom when i perform solo um but also yeah i mean it's a very different experience on the road you know obviously when you're touring with 26 people i mean the great thing about snarky is there's so many different personalities that you know depending on what kind of mood you're in you can have you know the corresponding kind of conversation um you know which is which is great um but then also I mean, it is it's it's genius. Yeah. You know, really. So like melancholy, um, you head to the melancholy member of the band. Uh, what a party! Go to the party animal. <laughs> That's it. And there's there's when when there's that many people, there's there's something for everyone, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, it's it's great, and that's kind of I, I do believe that's sort of what has has kept it as as healthy as it still is, in the sense that you know there's just such a strong sense of camaraderie with with the guys and you know i mean obviously we've we've all kind of grown up together really i mean we've known you know i've known mike now for 20 years and um we've we've roughed it together you know we all kind of grafted at the beginning together and i think that was very important and a formative process to all kind of go through but no then obviously when, when it's me by myself it's you know it's just a very different uh different kind of life so I, I at the gigs I you know I'm, I'm literally just on my own I, there's no tour manager no sound man because it's just my, my, mainly solo piano so I, I'm bringing some electronic stuff with, as well so it's quite a simple setup but you know so I just end up meeting the promoter and I get you know I meet people at the gigs and stuff and yeah it's just a very different different existence yeah completely <laughs> goodness and what about just logistics and carving out breaks you know you've kind of on the one hand you're you're all over the place uh, touring at the moment solo, but then you're kind of you, you just said you've just you know finished the snarky uh, and the album's just come out as well and that tour. 
how do you manage your life? How do you think, right, I need to have a break? Because you could, if you're not careful, just work, work, work. But I guess if you love it, I guess that's fine. But you, you do need a break, don't you? That's a, that's a great question. Um, because I think this is the sort of the, you know, the, 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 the catch with being a freelance artist is it's really hard to know where the line is as to, you know, when to stop working. I mean, it, it, you know, you'll always if if there are opportunities there, you, you, you know, the instinct is to always just go for them. And I am trying to be more careful about what I sort of commit to now. Um, you know, I mean, it's been a really intense three or four months really pretty much since um writing and recording the solo piano album it's kind of been non-stop since about uh, may and and when i get to the end of this tour um i get home in december like basically the end of november beginning of december and i've got those two months where i mean i'm i'm, I'm editing and i'm mixing a new album but i'm i'm going to mostly be at home and i'm, I'm going to make a point of just you know trying to trying to be home as well and i've, I've got a little three-year-old as well and he's kind of become used to me being away, I guess, but like, it's, it's hard. It's, it's really hard to be away. And so I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to get that balance right. Yeah. Yeah. Really tough. But you know, it's obvious that you love it. So, so that's, that's the, that's the best thing about it. And you know, maybe in a few years he'll come on tour with you and he'll be your, he'll be your percussion guy. That's well, man, you actually just totally read my mind. That's exactly my plan. I mean, with, you know, without putting too much pressure on, I'm going to, I'm gonna, you know, that's totally the goal is like get him actually get him on drums and 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 bring him on the road. That's that's entirely my my plan. Oh, so. that sounds brilliant. But you know, I, 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 even when you're sort of knackered on tour, it's it's it is the music that that keeps you going. Because uh, sleep deprivation is is a tricky one, but I I find you know once you're on stage, it's like that's uh, you're reminded of you know, why, why we do it. And, and I'd find every time I'm kind of in need of inspiration, I just, I just, in a way, it's an almost an opportunity to double down on the music and, and, and just kind of, you know, just commit, commit to the, commit to the reason you're there. Right. And you talked about, you know, uh, your three-year-old, but for you, you started playing piano quite, quite young. And was it always keys for you? Were you, was that, was there any other instruments or was that the one instrument that you thought that that's me I think it was always piano to be honest I mean I you know I I I think of the piano as a, a member of the percussion family um like so I did I did also play drums at school and my first teacher was a ragtime player and it was all about the kind of joy in playing at the beginning um and I was really lucky I had an amazing teacher my first teacher called Mel Robinson who sadly we lost a couple of years ago but uh, everyone in Hackney near Dalston where I grew up um, all the kids around there were all being taught by him and he was kind of like a, a local legend and he totally instilled this kind of this joy um, uh, in making music that, that and I was seven years old and and I had, there was a piano in the house so I was always kind of interested in this thing that was making noise and stuff but just seeing how much fun it could bring was like that was the kind of light bulb thing that I've, I'm still chasing. To be honest, I feel like that 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 first spark is still very much a part of, you know, the way I play now. Um, but uh, yeah. And how wonderful that it was ragtime because I'll be honest, there's probably not many piano teachers around that are really doing pushing the whole ragtime thing. I, I guess and and for you, yeah. that that sort of sowed the seed for jazz and and and, and playing that as a career yeah completely he was also keen to kind of get me on the scales and stuff but <laughs> i think in you know it was he he would always sort of dangle the carrot with playing some stride piano you know it's like if you want to play this do ba do ba do better do better then you've got to play the scales it's like okay all right all right <laughs> you know, he he just knew how to how to get 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 me to do it you know 
So when did you know that you wanted um, to, to pursue this um, as a career? And, and what were your parents' thoughts on, on that? I mean, you know, there was definitely periods of, of, of struggle. Um, and I remember, I, I mean, I quit. I quit twice. Um, there is a point at which you have to kind of graft um, to have any kind of technique. There, there is always there always has to be a kind of some element of feeling like you're having to go to the gym you know um because you are you're developing those muscles and so it was tough you know um but I think as I said I think because the joy was sort of always at the forefront of it all um and then I just got really lucky I mean I I, my first gig I, I was 14 years old um and I, I got a gig in a restaurant in Covent Garden. I was pretending to be 18. And I just I just played, you know, just some boogie-woogie stuff, really, initially. I mean, I, you know, I had when I was 14, my repertoire was pretty minimal. And uh, I bet you were the, that uh, all was, your friends, they loved the fact. I mean, you were so, they were probably so jealous because you, you were earning money at 14. And they might be doing paper rounds. I imagine you were getting better money than a paper round. Well, that that that's quite a funny story. I was like, man, I've got this first gig, so I invited all my friends to this restaurant, and they all just came and ordered like a, a coke, you know, and then and then they and then they left, and then the, my manager was like, you can't invite them ever again. Like that's just ridiculous. What do you think? This isn't this isn't a you know this isn't a jazz club, you know. <laughs> uh, it's something like you go. It's like you know there's like ten teenagers just all drinking coke in this Italian restaurant in Covent Garden. It's like what the hell. Um, <laughs> But uh, but that 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 really kind of is where it all started in a way because I, I then it was forced I had to learn more repertoire and I just would work on somebody's I'd try and just kind of get somebody's foot tapping because obviously they'd come to have a steak you know they didn't come to hear me but like I I found that it was my challenge to see if I could kind of get them off off their conversation and get them listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> Great challenge. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and when yeah. you say that you quit twice. What brought you back? I think just a just a love for the a love for the music, a love for its sort of capacity. Um, I think I've always when I have been inspired, I I've I think I've found I've felt it very profoundly. Um and I've I've kind of it's just kind of uh dazzled me, you know, and and just completely sort of intoxicated me and in, in like as a I just knew I wanted to kind of find my own version of a piece of music that has inspired me you know and so I think that has is what is, has kind of kept me going and um and stopped me from sort of quitting altogether um I think it was really the pursuit of finding my own voice I think I, I at an early age I kind of started to realize that there was a sound there somewhere mm. um and that you know I had to kind of if I was going to find it I was going to have to you know, work hard and start searching. <laughs> yeah. And you said you had a limited repertoire. So what, what mm. kind of stuff were you playing? And and did you get a bit bored of it? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of standards, I guess, you know. I mean, I was playing a lot of pop tunes as well and trying to sort of put them in a kind of, you know, dinner, p- piano, jazz sort of framework. Uh, and I've played a lot of reggae, actually. It's okay. kind of quite interesting in the context of di- dinner jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but all sorts, yeah, just like the full full spectrum, you know. I mean, I was playing, I, you know, and then I, I got into lots of Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson and like <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And I, I put in a, a few classical pieces as well, and then and then obviously just kind of um, got heavy into the jazz standard repertoire mm-hmm. um, and covering all that. But I used to have a tambourine on my foot that I would 
just tap on the two and four and when I was doing walking bass lines I you know trying to create a kind of sort of a one man band kind of vibe and that that you know for the Friday nights like some in fact the very first then I then I moved to a different restaurant in um, Soho and the very first gig I did there happened to be like the most rowdy gig I'd ever did there in in my sort of six years of playing there. And like they were all kind of dancing on the tables at the end. It was kind of bonkers. <laughs> um, and it was like and that and that was, just, you know, another just French restaurant, you know. Yeah. And uh, I thought I'd, I'd I'd found found the gig I'd been looking for. Yeah, well, it gave um, you a taste of audience <laughs> feedback and and it just yeah. Yeah, yeah. I bet you didn't I know think, that you'd be having yeah. snarky puppy gigs that were sort of you know going to be well just as amazing even more I'm sure. <laughs> I think that's it though. I think playing for an audience, even though they weren't necessary, they hadn't come to hear me. You know, just just that that sort of exposure of just playing to people, listening to some degree, I think is. And, and, you know, I, there was several summers where I played like almost every night at this place um, and, you know, making tips and stuff. And it was it was brilliant. man. I mean, I, I, I do think it's kind of basically where I learned to play, really. I mean, mm. you know, the years before that were kind of developing, developing the technique, but like, you know, really learning how to kind of, you know, how to, move, I guess, to move people or how to how to move myself you know how to how to play something that I really kind of believed in um you know that that uh, takes time and, and and when you went up to Leeds to, to to study did you carry on doing the gigs in the local restaurants as well or was it all about the degree then uh so Leeds I majored in classical composition um at university um it's funny I think I wanted to do a, a degree in jazz I wanted to go to like a conservatoire to do jazz and it was actually my dad that said he was like, I think you should do a classical degree. <laughs> uh, and now look and, at you. you know, I remember at the time thinking, well, you know, that's all right. Well, no, I mean, now I look back, I'm actually, I'm, I'm grateful that he did that because I feel like, you know, it get, it just gave me such a sort of important foundation and understanding of, of that that world that actually I haven't kind of done a lot. I mean, well, I'm doing more in uh, now more recently, but. Um, I had the opportunity to, uh, to conduct an orchestra there and I wrote loads of, you know, um, I composed lots of music for, for orchestra and and that was an invaluable experience. But then it was like, actually, once I left uni that I in Leeds, I, I then made a point of like playing in as many different kinds of bands I could get my hands on. Um, so I was playing in like a salsa group, a reggae band, like lots of jazz, soul bands, uh, pop groups, and then classical things. And, you know, so it was this, um, I was just kind of wanted to just try and understand all these different genres and and, and, see, and see what made them work and, and, and kind of get under the, under the surface with all of them. Um, and it was during that time that I met Michael League. We had a mutual friend who invited him over and we, we were playing a gig in, Bridlington playing Chet Baker music um and uh and we just hit it off and and you know so I I, I always say it's just like you just never know who you're going to meet on any random gig so take it take every gig you can get basically and when you met him how on a sort of scale of one to ten when you decided to sort of form snarky puppy was it like 10 I'm definitely going to do this or were there any moments of doubt when you thought well I had got another plan <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know. I think the chemistry was so clear um, that we were both kind of looking for the same thing musically. Um, you know, so I mean, I, I've been in the band since the beginning, but it, the band is is Mike's baby. It's it's his kind of 
uh it was his vision and um and he like we hit it off on this gig and he had come to dallas and record on the first album um and that was like 20 years ago and yeah. so I was going being, you know then i was going back and forth for the following 10 years playing house parties and sleeping on sofas and coming back 400 500 quid in the red but <laughs> having had the time of my life you know so because um, it's important isn't it that to make money when you're trying to work so you had the time of your life but was there any time when you just thought i i can't do this anymore i'm loving it but it's just not feasible yeah most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and what about your family? Um, were, were they kind of saying, I think it'd be better if you went back just to playing gigs in, in Pizza Express or something? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, you know, I think a big, a big sort of crossroads for me was I discovered um, writing music for commercials. And that was, I, you know, when I discovered it, it was like, this is, this is kind of, I thought at the time it was kind of the Holy Grail because I, here I am, like I'm making music and I'm getting paid well to make music. And it's and it's my music. I'm I'm writing it, you know. And then I did that for a while and it it, it paid for my first album, Flint, really. Um, you know, and allowed me to kind of do that stuff. And then I got to a point where I I had to make a decision about what you know which which way I wanted to 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 focus. And I remember it was actually Michael League, I have to thank. I mean, he's he's you know, he's one of my my best buds, and and he's kind of been a mentor over the years in in many ways. In the sense that, like a question like that, you know, I was because in and to go to, to go back to your question where you were saying, you know, were your parents worried? Like my both my parents were saying, this commercials thing is great. You should do more of it. Mm. Like it's great. Like don't you know don't, don't go to America. <laughs> um, and then I, yeah, yeah. But then I had this conversation with Mike, and I, I said, you know. And he asked me, well, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to write music for commercials or do you want to be an artist? And I said, well, I want to be an artist. And he said, well, be an artist then. <laughs> you know, and, and like, I'm sure it's kind of easy to say that and being an artist comes with its own, you know, consequences and uh, obstacles, obviously. But um, I think for me, there was a, a definite sort of conscious decision where at that point where I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I've got to do it like I've got to I've got to go for it you know and I've got to sort of really commit to trying to realize this 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 sound and this this voice you know um and I I do feel like that was a kind of turning point where I where I just I decided to kind of uh, put my foot on the gas a bit more in in committing to this thing of, of being an artist and maybe finding other ways of you know keeping that going like I, I i then instead of doing the commercials i was um playing music for dance classes so i was doing that in the mornings um and i'd sort of made my kind of rent money in the morning and then i had the afternoon to write and to arrange and and you know and do the artist stuff and 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 for the band itself you know it was a long time before you got the recognition that you deserved winning the grammys that must have been pivotal and got got you noticed but was there were there any other points where you were just like yeah this is it this is the time when we're actually being noticed for all our hard graft and our sleeping on the sofas mm. and not not earning much money yeah yeah it's a good question i i think a, a, a big moment was our first gig out of um the states which was in london um at a venue called cargo in shoreditch and that was the first time we we played out of america and and so we kind of had no idea what to expect and 
and the thing sold out straight away and and just it was it was the energy in the room that was like whoa this is this is something else you know that there's a there's a kind of heightened um appetite in in the room here that that you know we were all quite struck by and and i think that was you know that was definitely a moment that kind of paved the way for the way things developed i mean i think you know obviously the the putting the, al the album um tell your friends on online and sharing that on facebook and youtube was a big moment where you know the band went from being a kind of unknown entity to suddenly being you know accessible all over um in a different way i think the fact that we had the headphones in the studio you know people mm. coming and we videoed a studio session with the audience in in the studio itself i think that as a concept was you know quite a sort of significant moment um but then yeah for sure i mean the grammys definitely you know made a big difference too um and it's it's been amazing to kind of see to get that kind of recognition and and to and to see that people are really kind of noticing um i guess from uh, at the same time though you know there's there was the sense that we'd kind of been doing that for a while and and all of a sudden we got this recognition and all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. everyone oh, so knew here about you it. all but, are but, where you know, have you all been we've been doing this for ages yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that I mean, there was there was an element of that because you know we yeah. were we've been hitting it for ten years, you know, yeah. Yeah. and then all like and then out of nowhere suddenly it's like oh you yeah and then whenever whenever anyone asks like wow you guys are amazing like how long have you been together we'd say ten years <laughs> and, and and they go what like you know that's nearly as long as a Grammy way. ceremony because where those, have you been yeah. You know. Those Grammys ceremonies are, are very long as well, aren't they? Goodness, <laughs> to sit through all that, <laughs> but then it, oh, with a good man. result. Well, that, well that, that was the funny thing. So we, 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 our first time at the Grammys, we went through and then we went to the ceremony and then we won it. And it was like, oh my God. And then you get sent through all these kind of press and get sent down this kind of, this shoot of, you know, it's just this long tunnel of different press. And then, and then you get, as if you win, you get sent back around to the front to walk the red carpet again. Right. And like after after we'd won, we went back to the front and walked the red carpet, and and like nobody said like nobody asked us anything because nobody still nobody knew who the hell we were, you know, like. Well, you don't want to be. Um, Do you want to have an easy you know, one, don't you? <laughs> oh, what what a great I mean, you know, yeah, great result yeah. after all that hard work, and and I know that um, you're really passionate about you know educating with music in schools. I guess is sort of slipping away a bit now and you talk mm. about your amazing um, music teacher and and also music and tech because you know I remember my Casio <laughs> little keyboard and things have things have moved on a lot from there but um, you know a lot of people might <laughs> say that tech stifles creativity um, but mm. for you it's a real bonus isn't it absolutely um, I mean I, you know I think it's kind of how how to yield its power because i mean obviously the way things are evolving the, the 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 new technologies that are kind of coming are super exciting both in terms of effects and different things you can do both to electric keyboards and or in the context of electric keyboards but also to an acoustic instrument so what i'm sort of getting interested in the moment is like um these different sort of ways of of affecting the acoustic sound of the piano so i'm, I'm i put a, a microphone on the acoustic piano and i put effects on that sound so you kind of you have a combination of the acoustic sound with an affected sound and it's that kind of combination the kind of line between the two that i'm i'm particularly interested in um but also just you know 
uh, there, there are these new designs. Um, there's this thing called a palm mute. That's this kind of contraption that you can put on a grand piano and operate with a pedal, and it just mutes the strings. There's this guy um, uh, in Denmark who's designed this thing, and it's like it's kind of suddenly turning the piano into a more of a almost guitar-like instrument in the sense that you can mute it. So and then that just kind of opens up a whole new world of of kind of timbre of the instrument you know yeah. and so I, I i think like particularly with the acoustic piano i'm 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 particularly interested but then obviously um fender Rhodes, they've just released the mark eight and that's like a whole new world of the next generation of roads where they've they've taken the the, the analog signal of a, of a fender Rhodes and turned it into a synthesizer so you can actually create a kind of synthesized tone generated from the roads itself which again is kind of a sort of revolutionary concept and and so all this stuff i think you know the way it's evolving is just super exciting and 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 super relevant you know i think if any artist i feel like you know it's it's super important to kind of uh embrace this stuff and 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 celebrate it you know but all this kit what isn't it a nightmare when snarky probably go on tour? I mean, <laughs> when you go through airport lounges, well, I know how difficult it is just for classical musicians with just like you know a cello. But you guys, they must hate you, and you probably hate them as well. But it, it's it must be there's, there's a lot of it, isn't there? There is a lot. I mean, the the backline with snarky is is kind of ridiculous. It's uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of gear. But actually, I mean, we don't fly. Well, we the guys obviously fly with the guitars and stuff, but all the keyboards um depending on how it's rooted like if we're doing a bus tour then everything yeah everything's on on the back of the bus but um if we're flying then ten- generally the venues provide the back line so they kind of bring it all in mm. um but but it's a it's a lot of gear yeah for sure and flying is a nightmare with that band because like you know there's a lot lot to be carrying through yeah you, you talked earlier about um how so different it is when you're solo compared to when you're with the band and I guess when you're solo, you could argue that it's quite scary because you're, you know, you are on your own, and and there's a almost sort of when, mm. with numbers, you can you can't hide, but you can have support, can't you? But you still, for you, mm. solo playing is 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 utter freedom. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. It's a it's a different kind of uh, challenge, and you are you're you're utterly exposed. Um, but in a way, you know, I find that empowering because you are you, it gives you the control to to be able to control the entire contour of the song and of the, of the set, you know, and so you can, and as I say, you don't have to confer. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is actually now I'm, when I'm performing, so I'm tr- trying to kind of actually prepare less of a, a set list per se, or just kind of be open to the idea that depending on how I'm feeling within a particular song, just kind of going off piste if it feels right to do that mm. um and then then you're creating something unique to that moment and like i feel like if the goal is if i'm if i can surprise myself on stage and like actually kind of go create a moment where it's like i have no idea where i am right now you know uh like actually that's kind of you know then the the i feel like the audience will be with me on that mm. you know mm. <laughs> maybe they're just all gonna be confused but like <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I I think that sense of vulnerability and freedom is kind of where the where the gold is in mm. in performing solo. And you know, Keith Jarrett is like a, a master of that. Like he's, um, you know, that Colm concert. I'm fascinated by um, his solo piano thing, where he just kind of stays in, you know, a very simple progression and just see, and 
because you know the story was the piano was kind of a bit bright in a particular frequency so he didn't want to so he, he stayed in a, in a particular part of the, on a particular part of the piano and that generated a completely sort of different approach to the to the improvisation you know and so just kind of being open to those kinds of things because obviously the room changes the audience changes the piano changes so you you have to kind of be malleable and flexible and 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 just kind of adapt to and also so you change like how you how you feel on a given day is you know i think I, I ha- there has to be sincerity in what you're mm-hmm. playing so you, so i have i have to kind of just be honest with myself when i'm when i'm particularly when i'm performing solo yeah and but, and, perform- and performing solo you can you can kind of you can indulge in that even more i would say but it, it's the perfect job in a way because you've got that ability to do your solo stuff but with snarky pocket puppy you can go on and you can do your own thing you can you know because there's so many of you you can kind of come in and out can't you but I guess because there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment um, with the cost of living crisis and people wanting to get have a career in the music industry and it's kind of getting harder and harder because if you're just starting out would you have any advice for anyone who's who's just starting on that road of maybe playing gigs in restaurants in Soho it's true man I mean it's it's it is tough and you know I was just talking with the um the promoter in Dresden last night here in Germany um, and he was saying that since the COVID pandemic, you know, particularly kind of audiences above like sort of forty plus, uh, like they've 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 just cut like fifty percent. Like you know, people are still in Germany specifically. People are still not willing to come out. You know, um, and so just audiences have just kind of fallen off a, a cliff in terms of numbers. So it's it's really hard, man. Um, and I think the answer. For me, has uh, I think always lied in uh, both, I guess, adapt a degree of adaptability, but also just trying to kind of keep as many plates in the air as possible. So uh, you know, while I say I've I kind of committed to being an artist, you know, and I think all these plates are relevant to that. But then, you know, I was exploring, I, I sort of explored the world of writing for music for commercials. But then th- from that, I also wrote some film scores. And so there was that going on. And then I've, you know, I've run this, I run a Patreon um, thing where I have like, um, I do a monthly kind of masterclass on that. And that's actually now kind of replaces the teaching that I used to do. I mean, I used to do a lot more teaching as well. Um, and also I would say, you know, that the difference, obviously the, there's there's downsides about the streaming world, but it is an incredible thing that you can, anybody now can release something and have somebody on the other side of the world be able to listen to it by in the click of a button and i think that is a, is a kind of power that that you know should be taken advantage of um and the online generation i think there are ways of kind of utilizing that to um to our advantage you know and, and it's i think yeah it's just about being adaptable really and and just 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 having as many plates in the air as yeah. as you can yeah you know? looking back on well on your career so far and i'm sure there's so much more to come but um the pivotal moments. I mean, you talk about your piano teacher and learning ragtime and then doing the gigs with your friends with their cokes watching you in in, uh, in Soho. <laughs> and then and then meeting um, Michael um, at Leeds as well and, and just carrying on. Have, have I missed anything? Is, is there anything else that you think, yeah, that was a really big turning point in my career? I mean, I think, uh, you know, something I say a lot to anyone I'm teaching is the significance of traveling and going to the going to the source of the places where the music that has inspired you comes from so you know if you're interested in jazz 
go to New Orleans, you know, if you're interested in Brazilian music, like go to Rio, you know, or Sao Paulo, or go to Cuba, like, uh, go to the Color Festival in Calcutta in India. Like these these places, all each, each you know, every one of them, and there are loads more, you know, are they all kind of sit as uh, uh, pivotal moments in terms of my development as an artist, I think. Just experiencing music in different contexts and 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 seeing how it's digested in different ways, you know, um, and 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 how where different focus is put. Um, but that's all just about traveling. I mean, I, I would say, you know, definitely the, the the Grammy was 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 big, and you know, the further Grammys since then have, have been significant. Um, I think, you know, recording. Uh, my live, my first proper live record at Union Chapel, which was a um, my fourth album, uh, which I performed to a, a sellout crowd in in Union Chapel, which is right right around the corner from my primary school, and I used to go there and play the organ when I was a kid. And I, I remember we went on a school trip there, and I played the Beverly Hills Cop theme tune on the organ when I was like nine years old, and I was like the, the coolest kid in the class, you know. And then I'm I'm back at that place, like you know that was powerful, and and you know to catch that all on DVD and all that was was you know that was that was a nice thing. Um, and then just recently, I, I I just wrote a double cello concerto for the Metropole Orchestra uh, that was premiered at the Cello Biennale, which, again, I think you know I've always dreamed about writing for for a professional symphony orchestra, and 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 that was it realized, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and and that was def- definitely one for the bucket list. But you know, I, I think ultimately the grass never stops being greener. You're you're always chasing, and I've I've really been struck by that meeting a lot of my idols and, and and discovering that they're still chasing in just the same way you are you know in the, you you'd think they might like they they just maybe they just feel like they you know there's a point at which you feel like you've made it or something but like obviously it just that never goes away you're all, you're always you're always chasing you've only just begun i can't wait to see you and your uh, three year old on stage in a couple of years uh you know d- double act <laughs> or, or maybe it, make this make the snarky puppy collective even bigger uh who knows that'd be fantastic <laughs> obviously i'm biased but like i do think music you know i asked john mclaughlin the guitarist i was lucky enough to meet him a few years ago and i said what's your favorite thing about being a musician and he said it's the fact that i'm part of a universal family wherever i go in the world i meet somebody in japan who i don't and we don't speak the same language but if we discover that we're both musicians suddenly we're like brothers or sisters or cousins you know in because we're both musicians and and I think like what other art form can sort of do that has that capacity you know yeah. and so I'm just like adamant that my little boy I'm going to do everything in my power to try and make my little boy like you know be a part of that I mean if you know he can you know no pressure no pressure man but like <laughs> you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep I'm gonna keep the door open and just and and try and you know illustrate that it's a it's the most wonderful thing to be to be a part of you know and and to be able to kind of it, it was, you know it, it, search and, and grow uh and keep sort of learning in, in in the world of music is is a privilege and and, and just something to be celebrated Bill, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and good luck with the rest of your gigs. Thanks for having us. It's great. Great to chat. Thanks so much to Bill for talking to me. And since we spoke, there's been another album and congratulations on another Grammy for Snarky Puppy. I think number five now. Wow. If you love music, there's so many musical guests on the podcast. We've got singer-songwriters, producers and musicians, Dan Gillespie-Sells, Reese Lewis, Guy Chambers and John Metcalf. Musical comedy duo Flo and Joan, cellist Natalie Klein and recording engineer Olga Fitzroy. 
Thanks so much for listening and head to Where Go Right on Twitter for more updates. And thanks so much too to Megan Brownrigg for producing.